0: This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Braham. Today, we explore the issue of whiteness and how it is learned in and beyond schools in Australia. My guests are Arathi Shriprakash.
1: Hello, my name's Arathi.
0: Sophie Rudolph.
2: Hi, my name's Sophie.
0: And Jessica Gerard.
2: Hi, I'm Jessica.
0: They have written the new book, Learning Whiteness, Education and the Settler Colonial State, which was published by Pluto Press. Arathi Shripakash is a professor of education at the University of Bristol. Sophie Rudolph is a senior lecturer in the Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne, where Jessica Gerard is an associate professor. Arathi Sriprakash, Sophie Rudolph, and Jessica Gerard. welcome to Fresh Ed.
3: Thanks for having us, Will. Hi, Will. Thanks. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm joining the conversation today from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people and the Bunrung people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to recognize Elders past, present, and future, and recognize that this land has never been ceded.
2: Hi. I'd also like to acknowledge that I'm coming from Wurundjeri land, and to acknowledge Elders past, present, and and emerging, and to acknowledge that this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land.
0: So, congratulations on your new co written book. It's really fantastic. And I'd like to just jump right in with an example that you sort of refer to a few times in your book. And this is in 2004, the Australian Prime Minister, John Howard, who pushed for legislation that would require all schools to fly a national flag or the Australian flag at inside the school grounds. And it was sort of done in conjunction with this new curriculum that the Howard government was pushing that sort of pushed these so-called values education. So I, I guess to start, Sophie, how do you understand this particular historical moment in Australia?
3: So this was a moment, one of many, I guess, where we see the settler colonial state trying to assert its dominance through what Aileen Morton Robinson would call the white possessive. So this is where the invading group try to make the country that they're occupying into a white possession. And this Morton Robinson charts how this happens in lots of different ways. It can happen materially through dispossession and enclosure. And I guess we kind of see the, the flag moment. So requiring all government schools to, to fly the Australian flag, a symbol of national sovereignty, I guess and to have a, that attached to school funding as this material illustration of the white possessive and that this has effective dimensions to it as well. So it encourages citizens to see that flag flying and to see that symbol of white possession and the values aspect to it, I guess, is also a kind of epistemological aspect. So the knowledge of the... Occupying group is seen as dominant, so this is a useful illustration we found in in looking at at those aspects of racial dominance, and and this was also a political period where the government attempted to secure the borders of the white nation through distancing itself from a role in Indigenous justice and hardening its borders to refugees. So it's quite a potent kind of symbolic moment.
0: It's a really fascinating moment, definitely. And, you know, to see that flag on, on school grounds amongst this larger sort of political context that you're raising, plus this history. But I guess one of the issues that needs to be a bit unpacked is this notion of whiteness. Like, if it is a symbol of white possessiveness, that flag on school grounds. Then the question is, well, what is whiteness?
1: In drawing on that example, one of the things that we're showing is that this wasn't actually an extraordinary moment in the history of the Australian settler colonial state. But one of the points that we make in the book is that these kinds of moments are part of the very fabric of the state. There is a continual assertion of what um, Aileen Morton Robinson has called the white possessive. So then thinking about That being the fabric of the settler colonial state gets us thinking about whiteness as a social and political force, one that the the nation is so profoundly structured around. So here, you know, what we're trying to do in the book is not necessarily think about whiteness only as an identity, only as a social construction, only as a kind of a structuring force, but actually all of these things. How we're approaching it is understanding the ways in which the systems of racial domination through which the settler colonial state finds its logic is sustained through racial hierarchies. And whiteness, we're naming, is at the centre of this. This is Whiteness helps us name these forces of racial domination. One of the things that I've been reflecting on um, through the process of writing this book, it's limiting to think about whiteness as only attached to to people. In fact, um, I myself am not racialised as white, and yet my own life has been profoundly shaped by whiteness. It's not only been affected by its domination, but I'm also enmeshed in its perpetuation. So that's what comes. Kind of brought us thinking about well how is this this social force of whiteness learnt, how is it relayed, remade, produced, as well as resisted over time
3: I'd like to say I think it's really important to remember that we are all constructed within this system of domination, so regardless of of how we are racialized, we're all impacted by the system of white domination, and I think that's One of the things that we're trying to help us all to see in this book is that the system of white domination impacts us all, and it does that in different ways. And that's why it's hard to actually define it in a really clear way, because the way that it operates depends on the context, the sociality, the interpersonal relationships, the power dynamics within that. Yeah. So it's hard to sort of
0: define it. I think that's right. You know, I mean, even some of the words that have been used, right? So it's a whiteness is a system. It's a force. It's a structure. It's a social construction. It's an identity. It becomes a rather complex thing or process, let's say. And so I I guess another way to approach it then is to think about if there's variations of and within whiteness.
2: I think that that's something that we're definitely attuned to in this book. Because we see whiteness as an educative project of the settler state, there is no uniform fixed understanding of whiteness. It constantly needs to be secured and re-secured, made and remade in every moment. And in fact, the, to get back to the flag, not to overemphasize that event, because as we were saying, it's not an extraordinary event, but to say that something like that indicates the need for the settler state state to be constantly asserting itself Mm -hmm. as the kind of sovereign leaders in a country that has unceded lands. And so there's a complexity and illegitimacy there at the heart of whiteness, which makes it always mutable, constantly mobile. It does do different things in different places and to different people. And it is really important not to shy away from that and see that as being a reason to kind of, oh, it's just complex, full stop, but rather to move forward and try and push an understanding of what that might mean. That's really at the center of the book. And so part of our emphasis on the contingency of whiteness is to understand that it is really resisted against. It's not a pure dominance. And in fact, we start the book with two quotes, one of which is by Duan Hussain, 12-year-old from Aranda and Garra country, speaking to the United Nations about his experience of schooling where his entire history, existence, culture is erased by a curriculum, by a schooling system that finds no place for him and his culture and his being. And again, I, I think it's a repeated event. That's, this is not an extraordinary kind of let's pull out this one moment, but actually this is the constant remaking that's occurring in every school across the country in different ways and with different effect. And one of the other things that we, we were thinking about in with trying to kind of come up with a framing of whiteness is that one of the important parts of it it's defined through who it understands as its being its other so it moves in relationship to who it's fearful of or othering at a particular time so we can see historically different very different understandings of whiteness and how it's formed and the kind of cultures that might constitute it. So it's definitely mobile, it's definitely mutable, definitely constantly changing and shifting, and that's part of its elusive nature that needs to be addressed.
0: Can you give some examples of historically how it's changed in Australia particularly?
2: I think I'll start by answering that and I will get to Australia, but I think it is important to address Australian history and again this is one of the things that we try to do in our book is to address it in connection with the global yes. flows of colonialism and settler colonialism. It's impossible to talk about settler colonialism, whiteness, colonialism in Australia without thinking about what's happening in Britain. And in fact one of the things I was thinking about when we were first talking about is the history of Empire Day in Britain, which was instituted at the turn of the century for similar kind of a fear that the empire wasn't being celebrated enough. So they kind of forced school children to parade around their schools. Another example of this attempt to secure the logics of colonialism, which impact British children as much as they might do Australian children at the same time. But in Australia, we can see a constant movement around who is feared and therefore how whiteness is secured and understood and the force of its effect. And so waves of panic around around Asian migration in the 1990s moves to then concerns around Middle Eastern or Lebanese migration, then a concern around Sudanese migration. You know, there's these constant waves of concern that fix upon an other culture or an other existence that is really, as we try to argue, is rooted in the illegitimacy of the settler state to begin with. And we're trying mm-hmm. to do some connecting work here to understand how whiteness works across in different ways, historically and in the present.
0: One of the things that I was thinking about when reading reading the book and thinking about the different types of whiteness and how it's changed over time. Particularly in relation to Australia, I was thinking back to the First Fleet when the British Empire first came to Australia. And of course, First Fleet, there was a lot of convicts because that's what Australia was sort of set up for the British Empire. But of course, the convicts on that ship were, I think a lot of them were Irish, who of course were sort of racialized as not being white and were anti-empire. That's why they were being imprisoned in many ways. And how that then evolved, you know, in the Australian case, because those many of those prisoners then got out of prison and were given land in Australia, and so ended up benefiting from living on that land and maybe ended up becoming racialized as white settlers, but originally were not actually conceptualized as such. And I think, for me, it just started, it opened up all these possibilities of how we think about whiteness, and then the migration of, say, sort of South African whites trying to escape apartheid or, you know, the collapse of apartheid and going to Perth in Australia, for instance. There's all these really fascinating examples of sort of different types of whiteness and how it's changed in Australia.
3: I think that just illustrates how much context matters and how much power is part of the picture. And so the hierarchies of racial of race constructed through particular political contexts and so you know this is where we see colonialism and capitalism as being really important forces in in constructing these hierarchies of race and then the social and political and economic power is distributed along that false hierarchy so that those at the top have more and those at the bottom have less. And so then those different contexts that you've kind of illustrated there, a range of these different contexts, position people differently in that hierarchy and that depends then on how much power they have in that situation.
0: How is whiteness connected to capitalism and colonialism?
2: Well, we think it's centrally connected because it's the means by which colonialism And capitalism took hold and was able to take force as a global. Political and economic and social reality. So, for us, we think with the idea of racial capitalism in the book as a means to think through the connections of whiteness to capitalism and colonialism. And we see these as interconnected and interdependent and as being essentially connected. So, it's not uh, for us, it's not about what came before or kind of getting bogged down in those sorts of concerns, but actually to understand their constitution and effect as racializing forces. So cap- as you noted before, you know there is a kind of a racializing tendency in capitalism in terms of me- creating categories of people, hierarchies of people, and that this force is produced in colonialism and British empire and British um, colonialism tr- draws on whiteness as its structuring force in order to give meaning to that and to create It's power and domination.
0: I want to dig in a little bit more. I mean, like, what specifically about capitalism, you know, is connected to this racializing and this categorizing of whiteness as the top? Because it, it seems to me that you could probably look at, you know, histories of communism and find something similar happening as well. So, like, what specifically about capitalism are we talking about?
2: So the first thing to say would be, and to Sophie's point before, is that context matters. So we're talking about, you know, our book is around Australia in particular, but also the connected histories to the British Empire. So we're not making a comment on communism. So taking that, we see that capitalism has it at its heart Many of the same sorts of practices that are at the heart of colonialism. So we talk in the book about the practice of enclosure and dispossession, which is absolutely at the heart of the capitalist development in England, where peasants were thrown off their land and land was enclosed. What was once public use becomes private use. We see the exact same thing with colonialism and settler colonialism, where land and people are dispossessed and enclosed. We see similar things with the extraction of value um, and divisions in labour. So we see these forces as being intertwined So in capitalism and colonialism and in the context of Australia connected to the British Empire through whiteness.
0: And what about Christianity? It seems to me that that would also be a big part of issues around whiteness and in particularly Australia.
1: Christianity hasn't been an aspect that we explicitly foregrounded in the book. But it is implicated through the projects of British settler colonialism and capitalism. And we see this in lots of different ways. We can look, of course, to the project of mission schools of the past. But what I think becomes really interesting in the present moment is how we see a kind of a sponsorship of what commentators have called a Christian worldview in educational projects. So to give you one example, there has been in recent years very well-funded and politically powerful lobby to install studies of western civilization within the higher education sector in australia and by western civilization this has been explicitly connected to what conservative commentators are calling a Christian worldview. So there is that, again, that continuation of an assertion of a particular kind of civilization worldview that is a response to kind of the, the perpetually unsettled and illegitimate nature of the settler colonial state. So it's again comes as a reassertion of whiteness's power.
0: In terms of, you know, issues of whiteness's power, in your analysis, a lot of it comes down to the state playing sort of a central role in perpetuating a particular whiteness's power. Can you explain the way in which you see the state actively involved in this process?
1: Yeah, so we focus on the state... Because the state, the way we're seeing the state is that it's the ultimate instantiation of the white possessive, because it claims its sovereignty against the sovereignty, the unbroken, unceded sovereignty of Indigenous people. So because of this, the state is always under threat. It knows its illegitimacy. It is continually searching for ways to defend itself in the face of that illegitimacy. So here, we're seeing that the state isn't this kind of pre-given entity or this thing that, you know, is, that takes form without a politics. In fact, its ongoing politics gives it this strong sociality. What we mean by this is that how we understand ourselves and others in mutually determining terms is a matter of how we relate to the state. So we are invited to learn whiteness, to deploy and practice it together as part of our relationship with the settler colonial state and this is why going back to Sophie's earlier point we are all touched by this project of whiteness no matter how we are racialized. One of the things we do in the book is try to understand this sociality and this politics of the state as pedagogy so we talk about the pedagogy of the state and this tunes us into the ways that whiteness is made, relayed, taught, learned and imbibed across generations. I think one of the things that we're trying to show here is in drawing attention to pedagogy of the state, we're seeing how there is an intergenerational project at the heart of settler colonialism. It is the settler colonial project is seeking White dominance into the future. It's trying to secure white futurity. And education, if you like, is one of the perfect sort of institutions or vehicles for that intergenerational relay. And that's why it's so important to understand education's central and violent role in the perpetuation of whiteness.
0: Arathi, you bring up a really interesting point about issues of the settler state and Australia in particular here, and, and sort of this whole idea of the illegitimacy that they sort of fear. And, and constantly having to prove themselves uh, you know, and the state has to prove itself. And it made me wonder, is there any difference happening between sort of the settler state and non-settler states where we might see structures of whiteness also existing but maybe operating slightly differently? And, and just to sort of you know, begin to understand whiteness a little bit more, maybe we need to separate out settler and non-settler states. So is there a difference?
3: Yeah, there is a difference. And I guess we're focusing very much on settler states which we see as where colonizers obviously invaded and instructed and dominated and then settled and made a home and so there's a you know scholars have talked about how there is an impulse of of genocide and replacement and so that's what's very specific to the settler state project and as arafi just said before it's this is what makes This permanence of the settler state is significant because that is what creates the need for the intergenerational effect uh, to constantly be needing to be reiterated and reinforced. But I guess what we're trying to do as well in the book is to demonstrate that all states are in relationship. So what happens in the settler state of Australia impacts and influences the kinds of projects that happen both in other settler states and in other other kinds of states. So that in Britain, for example, there is a, a relationship between what happens in Australia racially and what happens in Britain. Actually.
0: And if we turn to education, specifically, and schooling in particular, you know, in Australia, how are schools implicated in this production of whiteness and sort of maintaining the power of whiteness?
3: I think this is an opportunity for us to think through the three lenses that we use in the book to understand racial dominance and objective whiteness. And so we draw very heavily on the work of Aileen Morton Robinson, who we mentioned earlier in the conversation, and we try and Analyse and understand how the pedagogies of the state enacted through material ways. So the racialized extractions of resources and divisions of labor that build and sustain education systems through knowledge that allows us to look at how knowledge that challenges the legitimacy of the dominance of the settler state is denied and distorted within education systems and feelings which helps us to see how complex attachments and investments in feelings protect and bolster the white possessive. And so, you know, we have different examples of that. Jess, I don't know if you wanted to talk about some of those material examples.
2: Well, some of the things that we were trying to think through with taking a material lens is – thinking about the actual production of education itself so not just looking at outcomes which is often the focus on an analysis that wants to look at a material focus on education you know like difference in achievements or difference in employment outcomes but actually the production of education itself the buildings the the way it's built who builds it um, how that labour is understood, who profits off the production of those educational institutions, whose legacies are understood to be contained with them. We have a number of universities named after great leaders in Australian history, many of whom were great cheerleaders for public education but who were also deeply invested in the politics of eugenics, in the direct desire to eradicate Indigenous culture Um, Indigenous people, and in producing things like the White Australia Policy, which is quite a foundational policy moment in Australia, which existed for most of the 20th century, which was about trying to quite explicitly retain a white nation against migration and against Indigenous sovereignty. And so there's some really important aspects there materially to think about not just what education produces, but how it is produced um, and who gets ignored in discussions around that. So we try and highlight the labor that goes into that production and the kinds of resourcing that gets attached to that and gets produced, that education produces.
0: In the book, you also sort of talk about how that production of whiteness also sort of creates futures of whiteness, I think is the, the term you use. And one of the examples you point to is Western Sydney University sort of leasing out some of its high-rise buildings as a way to sort of perpetuate futures of whiteness. Can you explain how that actually works in your mind conceptually?
2: So there's a couple of things here. So part of it is about what we're trying to do is problematize some taken for granted assumptions around public institutions like universities. So often we think about them and, and you know there's a a general defense of them against neoliberal policies and You know, we've got a stalwart support of them. And what we're trying to point to is the ways in which these universities have within them the presumptive white possessive. They are a part of the claiming of land that takes no account of Indigenous sovereignty. And there's some really interesting work in the US. Sharon Stein's written about this around the land grants in the US that, you know, is often colloquially called the land grabs, because it was all about taking Indigenous land for public so-called good, and then off they go and proceed. And in the contemporary space, not only is that completely disregarding sovereignty, when universities turn into corporations, there's a re-embedding, and this is where the futurity comes into it, a kind of a reassertion of the white possessive and the accrual of capital that Alain Morton Robinson talks about in their claim to that land and what they're going to do with it. And um, Davarian Baldwin's written a fabulous book called The Shadow of the Ivory Tower. Tower, again in the US context, which talks about how universities relate to their neighbourhoods and their communities and how in actuality their corporate practices of expanding within communities, of policing their surrounding neighbourhoods is highly problematic and is not addressing justice or equality or any of those sorts of things, but is actually re-entrenching these problematic practices and cultures of white domination.
0: Your book is called Learning Whiteness, and it made me think, is it possible to unlearn whiteness. So, Arathi, I mean, so by way of conclusion, is that even a possibility to unlearn whiteness, given all the different examples that you've mentioned in this conversation thus far?
1: Thanks, Will. It's a great question. We actually, we use the term unlearning in the book, in our concluding chapter, partly as a provocation, because it's not as simple as, you know, one sitting down and rewiring oneself or reading a book and thinking, right, I've, I have fixed it, that's job done. But what we're pointing to in in thinking about unlearning whiteness is the radical change that's needed across all the dimensions that are involved in learning whiteness. So as we've been talking about, the book explores the material dimensions of learning whiteness, the epistemic dimensions of learning whiteness, and the affective dimensions of learning whiteness. These are all active investments in securing whiteness into the future. So unlearning um, whiteness to us means rethinking the dominance of whiteness across all of these dimensions. One of the things that we do in the concluding chapter is just is signposts. We're not we don't offer kind of conclusive uh, a template for change or or certainly not a ten point plan for the future. But what we do in that concluding chapter is gestured towards a reparative agenda, to think about what would the futures of education look like if we took seriously the past and present harms of whiteness in the settler colonial state of Australia and attempted to repair them, not, not in the sense of a simple fix, but in the sense of, of a radical transformation across the material, affective and epistemic.
3: Yeah, but also that it's a collective project, that we as three people can't say this is how it should be, that it is a social, political and collective project and that particularly as settlers, we can't say what Indigenous people are going to want in terms of a future of reparations, but we can be part of that. We still have a responsibility to be part of that process and to listen and to be engaged and to be invested in futures that are divested from whiteness.
2: And perhaps it's also about an an opening to like, you know, that we do end the book on it explicitly on an opening because we feel like a commitment to, you know, unlearning whiteness is a commitment and an invitation to a future that we are yet to know. And that that's that's an important part of this this process that we we can't define it and to define it in these terms right now wouldn't be the right
3: definition
0: well arathi sophie and jessica thank you so much for joining fresh ed today it really was a pleasure to talk and congratulations on the new book
3: thanks will thanks will
0: Arathi Shripakash is a professor of education at the University of Bristol. Sophie Rudolph is a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne, where Jessica Girard is an associate professor. Their new book is Learning Whiteness. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Oba Obafemi Ogunle, Dionne Jiang, Annabella afro Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently-run podcast without advertisements, and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the shock dev family fund and listeners like you please consider donating to fresh head by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate thanks for listening i'm Will brem and i'll be back next week